pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So in this story, we see two women totally in love with Jesus. And you can tell that by their great gifts that they give to Jesus. Mary, this expensive perfume. Martha preparing this meal to honor Jesus. And we think about, you know, what that was to cost them, but what they gained also. It says further on in in Mark that uh, Jesus said in that um, book, it says that Mary gave all that she could. She did what she could. What a generous gift they did. But one thing we should learn, one thing I learned from this story is that our worth, the worth of Jesus, should try to balance out with our love for him. You could see their expression of love, couldn't you, in these two women giving all they had, you know, Mary giving. Uh, Judas says later on in those verses, he says that that perfume was worth a year's wages, about a year's wages, 300 days of, of wages. That's a pretty generous gift. But just think of this. I mean, she's in a room with her brother Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. They, they were just filled to overflowing, overflowing with this joy and thanksgiving for what their Lord had done for their family. And you could see that in their gifts. Martha's role, not to be underscored, she's busy working and preparing everything. That's her way of showing her love for Jesus. You know, they could have, they could have just done just a simple little something, but that, that wouldn't have reflected their love for him. They, they wanted to give their very, very best. They wanted to be generous. One other thing that I got from this uh, story is that it says the room where they were gathered for the meal, that the fragrance of the perfume went throughout the whole room so that everyone in that room was blessed by Mary's gift as she anointed Jesus, you know. And that's the way it, it is. When we have this love for Jesus, when we have this worship and this praise for Jesus, it should overflow to everyone around us. And in this case, it even overflowed to Judas, who was in the room. Judas was the one that was complaining about such an extravagant gift being given, you know, and Jesus kind of sets, sets him straight on that. But, you know, the main thing I wanted to get out of this is that, you know, we can't outgive God, and our, that our love for Jesus should be reflected in many ways. It should be reflecting in, in how we love each other, the way he loves us, and also in the way we give. We could be good stewards, we can be good stewards of what God gives us and we can give back. But the main thing that we can get from this is that we should give with love, right? Amen? We should give with the love, of great love that he's shown us we can show. And, uh, you know, in this church here, we're, our gifts are used for many great things. It's uh, to bring relief to those who are in need. We see that happening with our gifts. and We thank God for that opportunity. We see God expanding our facility, and that's a blessing. We just see God ministering even around the world. I, I think of, you know, it's going out on Facebook, what's happening here at the light, and that just can go anywhere. God can use that anyway. So that's, that's how God uses our gifts. And so we're just very thankful today. So gentlemen, we'll prepare ourselves for bringing these gifts, these tithes and offerings before the Lord. We're going to pray over them, ask God's blessing upon them. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. Like I said, Lord, we could never outgive you, Lord God. Your love is extravagant. Your love is something we cannot measure.
we put it on a scale, there's no way we could measure your love, Lord God. We just want to honor you, Lord God, with our giving. And we want to let you know that we love you and we thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, for this, these offerings. Just bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. And those of us that are not here are at the lake, I'm guessing. Some nice place. I'm glad you're here today, though. So as I mentioned last week, I uh, felt like the Lord had placed a message on my heart. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, once again, in case you weren't here last week, how this came about. But about, it's been, I don't know, three, four weeks ago at midnight, I get a phone call, and um, the voice on the end of the phone is crying so intently that I could not understand what this lady was saying. And so I had to ask her to repeat, and then I had to ask her to repeat again between the, the sobs and the crying and just this emotional breakdown. But what she was trying to say to me was that 40 years, she's held this secret for 40 years in her life, for 40 years she's held this secret that when she was 10 years old, a 17-year-old boy forced himself upon her. And so I began to look and, and begin to just kind of like, you know, how common is this? And um, I, um, 
I came across some just like crazy statistics. And I, you know, it was just like I, I was telling our board the other night, I said, I just can't believe that that, that I personally have been so blind to this and uh, just not knowing this. I mean, you know that it's a problem, but you don't know the depth of the problem. And um, these are some of the stats that I came up with. This is from um, the Atlantic Journal and also Psychology Today. One in three girls and one in six boys have been sexually molested before they were 18 years old. And uh, most of that happens within the family, by fathers and stepfathers and uncles and grandfathers and brothers and cousins and mothers and female relatives. It says Americans of both sexes, and I begin to think about this as well, like at holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Americans of both sexes will sit down at a meal together and be seated right across the table from the person that's been violating them most of their life. Mothers and other family members are often complicit, grown-ups grown playing pretend because they've, they're more invested in the preservation of the family and often the family finances than the psychological, emotional, and the physical well-being of the abused. Society has already unraveled, and the general public just hasn't realized it yet. 95%, now listen to these statistics, 95% of teenage prostitutes, we, we look at down the street, and it's so easy for us to point the finger, what is this girl doing out here on the street? What are these, what are these kids doing, you know, why are they doing drugs? Why are these young people slicing and cutting themselves? What's going on? I mean, are they crazy? Are they nuts? But listen to this. 95% of teenage prostitutes and at least one-third of all female prisoners were abused as kids. Sexually abused youth are twice as likely to be arrested for violent offenses as adults. They are twice as likely to run a lifelong risk of many mental health issues. They're twice as likely to attempt teenage suicide, and the list goes on and on. And it says in this, I'm still quoting from this article, it says the incest is uh, the single biggest commonality between drug and alcohol addiction, mental illness, teenage and adult prostitution, criminal activity, eating disorders, cutting, confused sexual identity, that would be, you know, gay or lesbian, um, and then, you know, this anger problem that so many young people are dealing with and don't even know why. I'm mad, I'm angry, but I don't even know why. I'm mad. I'm mad at the world. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at the perpetrator. I'm mad at my family. I'm mad at my mom because somebody in the family must have known this was going on and didn't do anything about it. And now I'm mad at God. Where was God in the middle of all of this? God, where were you? Why couldn't you come and help me? These are the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. Before I get too much more in depth here, I'm going to ask Angelique if she'd come up. She's going to share a quick testimony with us. And then um, I've got a video that I'm going to show, and then we're going, to, we're going to get in. We're going to just bring this stuff to light, guys, because one of the things, one of the biggest things that I see, both in men and women, is that the tendency to hide this and not talk about it, to stuff it, and suppress it, and just leave it there. 
But can you imagine how healthy the church would be and how healthy our community would be and how healthy our nation would be if this was brought to light and these individuals were healed? Come on up, Angelique. There? That's better. I'm not a pro at these microphones. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm actually honored to be here to share my story. I never thought that I would say that at the ages that this happened um, because it happened at a very young age. So when I was first eight years old, I was sexually molested by a family member, a very close family member, one indeed that I had to sit with every day, go to school with every day, and we were very close. And um, for many years, I blocked that out of my memory. But it happened again at age 13 by a very close family friend of my mother's significant other. And that one was a little bit more traumatizing and deadly. My life was at stake if I told anybody. But through the years as I grew up, it was indeed a dark place. It was a very dark place because that very sin that was placed in me at that point, taken away my virginity and the very depths of the darkness that you feel in that. You feel shame. You feel discord. You feel guilty. You feel confused. And these are all enemies' seeds that have been planted in these circumstances. And it needs healing. It needs the light of Jesus, just like that song that was saying to break the chains. There's a scripture in, um, I want to say it's 2 Samuel 13, that talks about rape and incest since the beginning of time. And it actually has encouraged me to come up here, because this morning I was a nervous wreck to talk about this. And um, God gave me that scripture this morning to say, you know what? This was in my very lineage of Jesus Christ in the house of David. There was that incest in that house as well. And, you know, Jesus came many years later to bring us liberty and freedom from the pain and the torture that goes on with individuals that have been touched by sexual immorality, really, is what it boils down to. And the sad sin is is there's, there has to be a compassion for those people that have done it. The relative that had done it to me actually is no longer with us. He died at a very young age. And praise God, it, God actually used his death to bring our entire family to the Lord. So where's God's glory? That big God, he was sitting there with me the entire time. And he said, you know what the enemy meant for harm? I meant for good. There will be victory in this. You are not a victim. You are victorious in my son, Jesus Christ. For the man that hurt me later, it was interesting. A few years back, we were serving at a funeral, and I'm in the line, and he comes in front of me. And my husband was with me, and I looked up, and I saw this, this man right there. I had to serve him literally had to serve him. And, you know, ladies, if you've been through this, the truth is your flesh will never forget what happened to you. There will always be 
that seed of fear and that seed of shame and guilt that the enemy will try to inflict in you. And he did. He almost tortured me at that moment. I was almost, I was actually in tears as I served him. I looked him in the eye and I gave him his meal. You know, I was serving him and it was hard. But the way that I saw that is the Lord was giving me an opportunity to feed my enemy. He says to cast coals upon the enemy's head, feed your enemy. And I did, literally, in forgiveness. My heart reaches out in compassion for that second perpetrator because who was his perpetrator? You know, the list goes on and on. We can't hold them accountable for that sin because at that moment, they're in the flesh. And how many times have we all fallen in the flesh? And fallen. We have such a gracious God, though, and He loves us beyond measures. He, in that story in Samuel, I love how it talks about um, about her. She's clothed in in rainbows and different colors, signifying the beauty of Christ. That she's already a daughter of God. She is a precious child of God, and He has a plan to complete her. And that plan is Jesus Christ, which he has brought healing to me. And I am completely and whole, fearfully and wonderfully made in Christ Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So um, the scripture that Angelique was referring to is where we're going to start. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 13. And um, I want to, um, I just want to, before we go any further, I want to pray. Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we know that uh, this is an intense and deep and for some um, uh, painful and hurtful subject, Lord. But we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would fall on this place right now. God, we're asking that today that you would set captives free. Lord, that those that have been wounded by the past and where their innocence, their precious innocence of a little child has been taken away. God, we just ask that you would just come in. You're the, you're the word says that you're the healer of the broken heart, and you can mend these broken hearts. And these that have been enslaved in darkness and secret, Lord, we're just asking this morning for freedom. Your word says where the, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, Lord, we're asking that you'd bring your freedom into this place. Unlock those shackled doors, Lord. Set the captive free this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so guys, uh, first, uh, second Samuel, excuse me, um, uh, chapter 13. And so let me just tell you who the players are right up front. We're talking about um, King David. Uh, he's one of the players. But the main players are Anam, who is David's firstborn son, and then we're talking about Absalom, who is uh, David's thirdborn son. And Absalom's a beautiful sister, Tamar, beautiful woman, virgin woman, the crown, of, crown jewel of, of Israel, just standing out both Absalom and, and uh, Tamar. And uh, then we're talking about a guy named uh, Jonadab, who was uh, a cousin to both uh, uh, Anam and uh, Absalom and Tamar. And so we're going to pick up in, uh, in chapter 13, 2 uh, Samuel 13. It says, In the course of time, 
Amnon, now this is the firstborn son, and keep in mind, you know, the rights that go with the firstborn son, you know, he is heir to the throne, uh, you know, should David die, the firstborn son, he would be the, the next king. But it says in the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love, and that's not a good word. He didn't fall in love, he fell in lust with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, the son of David. And Amnon became so obsessed, so lustful, I mean, he's just thinking about her just uh, day and night, his lustful passions with his sister. This is his sister. They had the same father but a different mother, okay? It says, and Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, and she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. They're all living in the palace, and he sees her on a daily basis, and his heart his lust is just burning, you know, in desire to have her. It says, now Amnon had an advisor, and his name was Jonadab. This was, um, Jonadab was the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So this was David's nephew, and it was also, again, Amnon uh, was uh, uh, cousins to Jonadab along with Tamar and Absalom. Now listen to this next verse. It says that Jonadab or Jonadab was a very shrewd and crafty man. I want you to just kind of mark that. A shrewd and crafty man. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And he asked Amnon, this is the, the cousin, the, his counselor, and he says, uh, why do you the king's son? You're the, you're the next in line for the throne. Why are you the king's son? So haggard every morning, morning after morning, won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And he says, this is, this is uh, Jonadab's advice. Go to bed and pretend that you're ill, Jonadab said. And when your father comes to see you say, and say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me some, uh, something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. And so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace. He said, go to your ha the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down, and she took some dough and kneaded it and made the bread in his sight and baked it. And she took the pan and served him bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here in my bedroom so that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread that she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? And where could I go to get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? I mean, she is giving him godly counsel right now. Where can I go to get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? She said, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. And then she says, speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he raped her. 
And then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he had hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be greater, a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her, and he called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. And so his servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and she was wearing an ornate robe, for this is the kind of garment the, the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put... Um, ashes on her head and tore the robe that she was wearing and she put her hands on her head and she went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. I'm gonna just tell you, that is like the worst advice you could probably give somebody. I mean, somebody is wounded and broken. Their innocence has been taken away. And you don't tell them to stuff it. You don't tell them to suppress it. You know, these things have got to be worked out and talked out. But he didn't know how to deal with it. And we'll talk about why he didn't know how to deal with it in just a moment. But it was mainly because his father didn't know how to deal with these things. And it says that, um, be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house. Listen to this. A desolate woman, a desolate woman, a pining woman. Some of the translations say a ruined woman, a woman that lived in depression, a woman that lived in disgrace and shame the rest of her life. And one of the reasons for that is because she stuffed it. She suppressed it and wouldn't talk about it. And there was no help for the victim here. It says, though, that when King David heard about all of this, he was furious. And that's the last word that we have. He was furious. He was upset. But there's not one place in the Scripture that says he did anything about it. Not one place that he did anything about it. David was furious. And Absalom never said a word. Remember, Absalom is Tamar's sister or brother. Absalom never said a word to Annan, either good or bad, he hated Am Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. I'm going to just stop there and I want to fast forward because we'll get into a passage in just a moment. It says that Absalom suppressed this as well. And two years go by and um, they have what they call the sheep shearing. Sheep shearing is a, a festive time of the year. It's kind of done in the springtime after the winter growth of the wool. And uh, it's kind of like Harvest time for the shepherd. Harvest time for the farmer is at the end of the summer and the, the early fall. But harvest time for the shepherd is during this time where you're shearing the sheep. You're, you know, cutting all of the, the lambs uh, and the sheep's wool. And it's a festive time. You go down to the, to the yards and they cut and gather the, will, the wool and they have parties and they drink. And like I said, it's a very festive time. And Amnon goes to the king and says, I want you to come. David, I want you to come. And David says that he can't come. But remember that the firstborn son was the next in line to be the king. And so Absalom says, well, how about Amnon? Can Amnon come? And he presses him and presses him. And David relents and says, yeah, Amnon can come. But Absalom had a plan. And he's been thinking about this. He's been 
plotting and scheming and planning this for two years. And he tells his men, he says, when, when Amnon comes in, I want you to jump on him and I want you to kill him. I want you to kill him. I want you to strike him down for what he's done to my sister. We'll pick up. I want, I want to focus. There's a couple of people I want to focus on, each of the ones that we spoke about. But I deeply want to get to the, to the victim here, and uh, that's Tamar. But let me just point out a couple of things along the way that I think will be helpful to us. I want to talk about Amnon's ungodly desire. Guys, when we get away from the Word of God, when you get away from the Word of God, we are treading in dangerous waters. And Amnon should have known what the Word of God said. When he said, come to, come to bed with me, my sister, and she says, no, my brother, my brother, my sister, my brother, they, were, they had the same father but a different mother. And she says, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But he refused to listen to her. He was stronger than she was, and he raped her. Now, if we know the Word of God, if he would have known the Word of God, and maybe he did, and just didn't obey the Word of God, listen to what Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9 says. It says, do not have a sexual relationship with your sister either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same house or whether she was born somewhere else. And this is the case. She was born somewhere else. Tamar was born someplace else. But the Scripture is very clear. Do not have a sexual relationship with your sister. The Bible tells us that there is no temptations taken to all of us that are no different from what others are experiencing. You might have these temptations. You might have these desires. But God says to put those evil thoughts... Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to God and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's from Isaiah chapter 55. It says, um, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So Amnon had the temptation but the problem was that he had an ungodly counselor, someone that was giving him bad advice. Um, and we, we might wonder, you know, where did where, Amnon's firstborn? As I mentioned, um, I think it's in uh, first, first Chronicles chapter 3, talks about uh, the, the wives. David had, I believe, seven, possibly eight wives, if we count uh, the Saul's daughter who um, was given to someone else. But... So he had seven wives, I believe ten concubines. But his, as I mentioned, his firstborn son was Amnon. Amnon was probably a teenager at the time that David looked over the balcony and saw this beautiful woman bathing down here. And listen to this. Sees a beautiful woman bathing, has her come up to his room, has an adulterous affair with her. She becomes pregnant. And then David tries to cover his sin. So he calls for her husband, Uriah, has Uriah come to the palace, tries to get Uriah to go spend an evening with his wife so he can blame this pregnancy on someone else, but Uriah won't do it. And then what does David do? He gets Uriah drunk, okay? And then he tries to get him to go home. Uriah still won't do it. So David has an adulterous affair, gets Uriah drunk, and then sends Uriah out into the battle and tells Joab, the commander, put him at the hottest part of the battle, and when he's there, withdraw your troops, let him be killed in the battle. 
me tell you, Amnon and, and Absalom, Absalom is, uh, does, takes a page from his dad's playbook. Amnon has an incestuous relationship with David's daughter, the sister of Absalom. Absalom says, I've got a plan. We're going to have this festive party. I want you to get him drunk. And when he's drunk, I want you to kill him. Same thing. Same thing. He's learned this. It's learned behavior. Absalom loved her, but then he hated her. The Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He thought he loved her. He didn't love her. He just wanted her. And as soon as he was done with her, he was ready to wrap her up and throw her out. Second thing that I want to look at this morning is Jonadab's ungodly counsel. It says, as I mentioned earlier, it says that Jonadab was a very crafty man. The first place that this sentence comes up, something very similar to it, is in Genesis chapter 3. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord had made. It was almost like the spirit of Satan, this, these demonic spirits and forces were upon him giving this ungodly advice. It says the spirit uh, or the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? And this is exactly what Jonadab was given. He was given ungodly advice. Did God really say you must not eat of all the trees of the garden? In verse 5, it says, he's given the, the ungodly advice. Go to bed, pretend that you're sick, and then uh, ask the king to let Tamar come and serve you. But listen to what Psalms 1 says. This is for you and I this morning. God blesses those people who refuse evil advice. See, if, if uh, Amnon was well-equipped, if his life had been founded upon the word of God, when Jonadab's advice came to him, he should have said, Look, man, you're a wicked man. You're giving me ungodly advice. This is what the Word of God said. God blesses those who refuse evil advice and won't follow sinners or join in sneering at God. Instead, the law of the Lord makes them happy, and they think about it day and night. So I want to just encourage you that that's where you need to be. That's where you and I need to be, thinking about the law of God, the Word of God, you know, how, how precious His Word is. The third thing that I'd like to point out this morning is... David's poor fathering skills. We know him as a man after God's own heart. We know him as a great, you know, warrior. We know him as the man that killed uh, Goliath. But let me tell you what we don't know about him, and the Bible doesn't speak very much about it, but we can, you know, um, as we filter the Word of God, we can see that David, while he was a, a great warrior and uh, may have been a man after God's own heart, he was a terrible husband and he was a terrible father. Uh, he had no, no good qualities in, in being a, a, a husband, and no good qualities as being a father as well. And uh, we can see that uh, as we look through the Scriptures in Psalm, for example, in Psalm, in the, in the entire book of Psalms, 150 chapters, there's only three references that David makes to his father. Only three references, and only seven references that he makes about his mother. And it makes it sound as if David was a deprived child. Remember, when the prophet showed up, all the other brothers were in the house. And when they're looking for the king, when Nathan is, or I think it was Samuel at that point, um, maybe it was Nathan, I can't remember. 
Anybody remember? Samuel, thank you. All right. Um, so when Samuel shows up, he says, um, is this all you got? And they said, no, there's another one out there in the field. We're all sitting here eating, but this little, the little kid, the little kid that we don't think too much of, he's out there taking care of the sheep. Remember when Jesse, his father, sent him to go check on the battle when he actually did kill Goliath, and uh, his brothers were deriding him. You know, what are you doing here? You just came to see the battle. We know what you're up to. You're up to no good. So it sounds like he didn't have a very good home life. You know, and then he gets into Saul's court. He's the musician, um, but he had no time for his children, um, and he belonged to everyone else except his wives and his children. Listen to this. It says, when the Lord punishes, don't make light of it, and when he corrects, don't be discouraged. The Lord corrects the people that he loves and disciplines those that he calls his own. Be patient when you are being corrected. This is how God treats his children. Don't all parents correct their children? And apparently, David didn't. David failed to discipline Amnon. It says that he was uh, furious with him. David failed to discipline even Absalom. There's no record in the Bible about David bringing any type of correction to his, his third son about the murder of the first son. And then... I think it's in uh, 1 Kings, I believe it's in chapter 1, David's about to die, and it says that uh, the oldest son of Bathsheba, I believe it was, uh, Adonijah, uh, just said, you know what, uh, it says, I'm, I'm just going to be king. You know, David's in there dying, he, he hasn't appointed anybody to be king, I'm just going to take this upon myself, and it took Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba at that point to convince him that Solomon was to be the next in line, to be, the, to be the next king. But it says about Adonijah that David never said one harsh, one correct, one, one word to him, never said a word to him. He was just a passive man. And then I want to, this is where I really want to land up this morning. I want to talk about Tamar and her shattered life. And just let me just read it again. Uh, Absalom says to her, Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. And then she asked this question. Let me just repeat this again, because I know that ladies and gentlemen, I mean, this is not a sin. This is not a problem that is exclusively um, for women. I know men, and, I've heard, and I'll share a testimony with you next, uh, next week about a, a baseball player, R.A. Dickey, who said that he was sexually molested when he was eight years old. And he was a professional baseball player and, um, you know, had a, just an incredible career ahead of him. But when he was eight years old, he was molested when he was, uh, by, a, by a young girl, a 13-year-old girl. And when he was that summer, he was sodomized by a teenage boy, absolutely ruined his life. I mean, wrecked his life. And he said, one of the things that he says, that while he was being sodomized by this boy, he says, one thing I know, while this is happening to me right now, I will never, ever tell another living soul about what has just happened to me. And that is exactly what Satan and the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to hide it because in hiding it, you suppress it. But the Bible says that when we bring things to the light, there is freedom when we bring these things to the light. You know, Tamar is saying, where can I get rid of my disgrace? 
you know, where can I get rid of this depression? Because these are all, you know, just kind of like um, the, the attributes. This is what comes with this, with this heinous crime, this terrible, this violence against the, just, I mean, can you imagine an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old girl that's being raped by a, a grown man and all of her innocence is being taken away? And it's, my God, what is happening to me? What is happening and why is this happening? And then into this prison of depression and pining and sad and loneliness, being devastated with a ruined life. And it says that she spent the rest of her life, Tamar did, the rest of her life living in an Absalom's house, living in these conditions, in this, in this emotional state. And Tamar, listen to one of the other translations, Tamar's brother, Absalom, said to her, how could Amnon have done such a terrible thing to you? But since he's your brother, don't tell anyone. And again, that's exactly what I'm telling you about, that when you hide it and you suppress it, it makes you, it makes you, 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 have, you have been violated by the act itself, but then the hate, and, and you become septic, you become toxic, because every time you think of this person's face or you see their face, as Angelique was saying, as you see their face or you think about them, something goes on on the inside. And God is saying that is what he wants to set you free from. Now, listen, guys, I want to just tell you that when we talk about forgiveness, as she said, there's no forgetting this thing. You can't, you know, you can't forget this, but you can forgive. And forgiveness is not the same. And this is where we hit the roadblock. This is where I see so many people hit the roadblock because you think, if I forgive, I'm condoning it. If I forgive, I'm saying it's okay. If I forgive, I'm saying that nothing should ever be done to this person. There should be no justice, no judgment, no vengeance from the Lord on this thing. That's not what you're saying. You're just simply saying, God, you know, this is, he violated me, but I am not going to violate myself and become septic and become toxic because of what somebody else did to me. Amen? Okay. So, and then another translation says, Tamar soon moved to Absalom's house, but she was always sad and lonely. And when David heard what had happened to Tamar, he was very angry. But Amnon was his oldest son and his favorite, and David would not do anything to make him unhappy. And this is where that, you know, being the father, being the spiritual head of the house, man, you got to deal with these things. When things, these issues come up, you can't sweep them under the rug. you got to deal with it. Listen to this. This is from Proverbs chapter 31. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, it says, speak up. That's what we are doing here this morning. Speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves. See, when you've been hurt so much and you suppress that and you stuff it, you can't speak for yourself. You can't speak for yourself. Speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Your spirit is being crushed by something that happened so many years ago. Yes, speak up for the poor and for the helpless and see that they get justice. As I mentioned earlier, two years later, uh, uh, Absalom has got this all pent up. Two years later, he's thought about it. He's played it out in his mind. And, uh, you know, who knows what Amnon would have, I mean, if he could have seen the end from the beginning. Would it, how it would have ended and resulted in his death. Maybe he would have thought this through. And I don't want to tell you this morning that you may have been the problem, you may have been the perpetrator, 
and you may be, have been the victim. But listen to the heart of God. The heart of God is that God wants healing for both. He wants the healing for the perpetrator, the one that caused the problem, and he wants certainly healing for those that have been victimized. One of the questions that we have a tendency to ask is, and the big one is, when we get through blaming everybody else, because if it's going on in a house, you're thinking your mother should have known, or you know somebody in the house should have known, one of the other siblings should have known, an employer should have known, somebody else should have known what was going on. And then we start blaming people, and we start getting mad at other people. We get mad at family members, and uh, eventually that leads up to we get mad at God because we start asking that question, you know, God, where were you? Where were you, God, when all of this was going on in my life? And that's, you know, I, there's no quick and easy Bible cliche answer for this. Where were you, God, when this was going on? But to show you how accurate and truthful and what a just stay, saying it is, you'll remember in the, in Steve was sharing from this passage this morning in John chapter 7 when Lazarus died. And, um, you know, there was no email, no text messaging. They had to send a runner, go get Jesus, and tell him that Lazarus is sick. And uh, so by the time that they get to Jesus, Lazarus has already died, and uh, Jesus waits even a, an additional day there with the disciples. But when they get back, uh, words comes to Mary and Martha that Jesus is on his way. And Martha goes out to meet Jesus, and listen to what she says in relation to what I'm talking about. She said, Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. What she's saying is, where were you, Jesus? Where were you? If you would have been here. If you'd have been here when I was eight years old or nine years old or ten years old, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? Where were you? You have got to just listen and hear the word of God. Because God, listen to what God says in Psalm 34. He said, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And some of you find yourself in that place today. And I, I'm just sorry that this is stirring up memories from your past. But God's saying that he is near to the brokenhearted. And he will save the crushed in spirit. Listen to Isaiah 57. says, for this is what the high and the exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. I live in the high and holy place. The third heaven. I'm way up there. But listen to what he says. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God's saying that I am here with you this morning and I will revive your spirit. I know you have a crushed spirit. I know that your, your heart is broken. I know that you hurt. And God's saying that I want to heal you. Let me just, I'm just going to quickly go through this and then we're going to have a, a time of prayer. And let me just say that Nina's going to come up in just a moment. But uh, we want to have, and because I know that it is such a, 
intense, difficult subject, as I, I said, to talk about. And many of you will walk out of here today and say, I'm not going to say one word about it. But some of you are going to say, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with this and I want to be free. But we, uh, we're going to have a time of prayer for everybody. But we'll have you know women up available to pray with women this morning if you want to get some prayer. But starting this Tuesday night, we're going to have a support group that runs for a couple of weeks here at, the, here at the Light for women this week. And that will continue on for a couple of weeks as needed. And then starting next Tuesday, the following Tuesday, next Sunday. By the way, next Sunday is our first uh, church picnic, so I encourage you to come and be a part of that. But uh, next Sunday, I'll be sharing just a little bit more on, on the uh, men that have been sexually abused. Because I know, while I know this is, it's difficult for everyone, I just see that in men, it's much, much harder for them to talk about. So let me just tell you three things that, that God wants us to do. And we don't find any of these answers from this story, okay? We have to go elsewhere in the scripture to find, you know, how to be healed. How to get, you know, how to get beyond this. Number one, if, you're, if you've been the victim, if you've, you know, been the victim of rape or insect, incest or sexual assault, uh, male or female, God wants you to, number one, discern your enemy. Understand who you're fighting against. The Bible says we are not fighting against humans. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world to, so put on the whole armor of God that God gives you that when that evil day comes, you will be able to defend yourself. And when the battle is over, you will be standing firm. And so we need to recognize that, you know, that it wasn't, Amnon was not the enemy. It was Satan and these demonic forces that were using him to get to tomorrow. Again, the, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It says a spirit, a spirit of lust had got a hold of him and he could not be redeemed. He was just at that place where he was driven by these demonic forces. The Bible says, this is what Jesus tells us to do, to love your enemy and pray for those that perse persecute you. It says that if when you, you're, um, excuse me, it says that God's grace, we know that God's grace triumphs. Uh, and if you will allow him to triumph, his grace to triumph over your soul, and cover this, and cover this, this horrible thing that's happened in your life so that you don't have this, this toxic, septic feeling toward this other individual where you hate them. Remember that the Lord says that if we forgive others, then God himself will forgive us our sins. And again, I keep, I've got to go back to this because forgiving is not letting them off the hook. Forgiving is not saying that it's okay. Forgiving is saying that you violated me once, but I'm not going to allow this thing to destroy my life the second time. I'm going to be free from this. And, you know, what you do is between you and God, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God changes your heart and brings you to a place of repentance. So number one, identify your enemy, discern your enemy. Number two is trust the king. We see that Absalom didn't go to the king. Uh, and had he gone to the king, there's a good chance that David wouldn't have done anything about it because he was guilty of the same kind of sin with Bathsheba. The Bible says that, dear friends, never take revenge, but leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge and I will pay them back. 
says the Lord. There are issues that can be resolved. You know, that's why God has given us authority. And that's why these things need to be, be reported. You know, I know that we think about ourselves, and I know that families have thought about it. There's some of you here that have had to deal with this, that you didn't want to. You're thinking that in protecting, you know, your son or your daughter, that it may be the best thing, because you don't want to get it out there. You don't want to shame them or embarrass them anymore. But meanwhile, the problem, the, the one that's causing the problem, the perpetrator has moved on because I got away with this one. The book of Ecclesiastes says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of those that are evil are inclined to continue to go that way. That simply means that because I didn't get caught this time, I'm going to get away the next time, and I'll get away the next time, and I'll get away the next time until somebody brings this to the light. And I know it's difficult, and as difficult as it is, we have to bring it to the light. And so the scripture says in Peter, it says, so then those who are suffering, and some of you are, according to God's will, that's just suffering in a right way, but not with hatred, not with vengeance, not with I wake up every day, I want to kill this person. It says, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't let the enemy sidetrack you into a lifestyle of bitterness and hatred because it says, the scripture says, a root of bitterness will defile us. And we look at Jesus and we looked at those and we never think of this as sexual abuse. But Jesus did experience sexual abuse. You know, we see these portraits of him, you know, hanging on the cross, but he usually has a loincloth on. But that's not the way that Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was stripped naked, hanging on a cross with everything visible for the entire world. Shame penetrated and pierced. And he looked down and he said, what you and I should say, I'm not going to allow my life to be toxic. I'm not going to allow my life to be septic. I'm not going to allow my life to be poisoned because of what they did to me. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And if someone's being driven by these demonic forces, that's exactly what you and I could say. We would hope that there would be a system that would allow for justice, that justice would come and prevail. But what happens when, you know, the people that should have known didn't know and, and the people that could have done something didn't do something? And I just have to remind you that sometimes uh, our, our parents fail us and, and our relatives fail us and those that we've entrusted ourselves to fail us and we think that they should have done something and, and teachers will fail us and, and coaches will fail us and, and you know, uh, employers will fail us and even government will fail you. And I'll give you two examples. John the Baptist went before Herod and he should have received justice that's in front of Herod, but instead, instead, he lost his head. And then Jesus appeared before Herod and Pilate, and Pilate just said, you know what, I'm, I'm just washing my hands. I, you know, I, yeah, I have the authority. I'm, the, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of government, but you know what? I'm not. The court failed him, and the court may fail you too. What do you do when all of this failure is around you and you're still locked in this prison? What do you do? How do you respond? And it's my final point.
It says that when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't say, I'm going to get you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to have my family, I'm going to do the Absalom thing on you, I'm going to, you're going to get your just reward. It says, but he entrusted himself. He was saying, you know, Lord, I might not find justice in this earth. I might not find justice in this lifetime, but God, I'm not going to let myself become poisoned because of this. Father, I'm going to trust that you have seen this wickedness. You've seen this crime that's been committed in my life, and I'm going to trust you to bring justice. And it says that that's what he said. It says that he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Now listen to what verse 24 says. While Jesus is trusting himself to be treated justly by the Father, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body and on the cross so that we might die to sins and live by righteousness. Now listen to what it says. That by his stripes, by his wounds, you and I are healed. Guys, I want to tell you that is every kind of healing. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. He forgives all of my sins. He forgives all of my iniquities. He forgives all of my trespasses. He heals all of my wounds and all of my scars, all of my emotional scars, all my mental, all my physical hurts and pains, all my spiritual hurts and pains. He heals me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Guys, I, I, I'm telling you this morning that he sees you as that young victim. And he wants to take you by the hand and lead you out into his presence this morning. Where there is everlasting life. And there is peace. And there is joy. And there is gladness. And this is something that many of you have not experienced for a long, long time. You forgot what it's like to have the joy of the Lord. You forgot what it's like to have the peace of God. You forgot what it's like to have the oil of joy and gladness in your life. God is a restoring God. He's saying, I will restore you today. I will restore you today. I'm going to close up. I'm going to ask Nina to come on up and bring that mic with you. And, and guys, listen to this. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more of this story because I know, I know the other half of this. And uh, the 10-year-old girl that's now almost 50, and now I know the perpetrator. I know the perpetrator to be a, a drunk, an alcoholic a user of drugs whose life is the same day after day after day. Drunk, alcohol, wine, and drugs. Why? Let me share one scripture with you. Drinking it's another one of those questions. Why? Why is he a drunk? Why is he a drug addict? Why is she cutting herself? 
Why taking pills? Why trying to commit suicide? Why is he a drunk? Why is he an alcoholic? Why is he a drug user? Drinking, listen to this, Proverbs 31. Drinking makes you forget. See, maybe he's in the place where I've known what I've done, but this shame is going to keep me in this place where I can't ask forgiveness. I've destroyed somebody's life. I can't stand to look them in the face because of the guilt and the shame that overcomes me. I can't stand to look them in the face. And yet I'm forced to on holidays, as I mentioned earlier, Thanksgiving and Christmas, I've got to sit across the table and I can't even make eye contact with them because of what I know that I have done. And so drinking makes you forget. And beer and wine are only for the dying. For those who have lost all hope, let them to, uh, drink to forget how poor and miserable they feel. I cannot face my problem. I will drown my pain. I will drown my pain. And it works on both sides. It works for the victim and it works for the perpetrator. I will drown my own side. I will drown in my own pain, drink, drinking this away, drugging this thing away. I can't stand the pain anymore, whether I'm a victim or I'm a perpetrator. I'm going to keep this hard, dark, painful secret buried. God's saying, let light shine into darkness. And the darkness cannot put it out. Love you guys. I just, I know God's doing something. He's doing a work here in, in the heart. Nina's going to come and lead us in prayer. Going to have our prayer ministers, some of the men, if you guys will go over to this side, some of the women, if you guys will go and just gather, just individually, women on this side, men on this side. If you need prayer for any reason at all, I want to encourage you to come up this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Rose and Angelique to come up. All the prayer ministers start coming up. You know, we like to have prayer every week. We know there's a lot of needs, not just this one. But I did, I was listening to a panel talk about this and um, just go over here, ladies. Um, an interesting statistic was that people that are uh, uh, subject to abuse or victims of abuse, that a third of them tell right away as children a third of them don't tell until late in their adulthood when they're having problems, and a third never tell. A third never tell because of the shame, embarrassment, guilt, fear, depression, all those things keeping you bound. And yet we did sing this morning about breaking every chain. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, amen? So if you've had a had this violation in your life, it's part of your life, it's part of your past. It can't be changed, it can't be undone, just like anything we've done in our past that we regret or ashamed of. But it's not the end of your story. There's healing, there's victory, there's overcoming. And the word tells us that, you know, Jesus is waiting to heal us in order that we can heal others and give the good news to others. I love that uh, the song also that we sang this morning that said, God isn't ashamed of us. He's proud to walk beside us. It's a great song for today. God's not ashamed when he sees us. He knows what's happened. 
and yet he says, you know, you're mine, I'm proud of you. So if you have uh, that own need in your life, I know it's hard. Maybe you have a child, a grandchild, a sister, a brother, someone that you know that has experienced this and needing prayer, come and stand in the place for them. And then this Tuesday, like we said, at 6.30, we'll meet here and discuss and minister further if you would like to do that, okay? So come on up for a prayer for that or anything else. Anything else, we'd like to invite you up. We'll be up here for a little bit. Uh, for those of you that aren't going to get prayer, let's just stand up and worship. There is power in 